Hello, and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. On this week's episode, HTB commissions new church plants and plants of church plants. What's the strategy? Madeline Davies has been finding out. We also hear about the questions a senior cleric has asked about the Church House Conference Centre hosting the annual Land Warfare Conference. And we hear from the Reverend Peter Crumpler about why democracy needs local newspapers and how churches can help them to survive. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe, where you can sign up for 10 issues for £10. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps people to find us. First, a church plant in a deprived parish in Plymouth is among the latest wave of church plants originating at Holy Trinity Brompton in London. They were announced at the church's Focus Festival last week. Madeline, you've been following this story. What's going on here? Ten plants in total were announced at Focus, and some of them we've already reported on. They've been in cities that we've looked at in terms of church planting. Some of them we're reporting for the first time. I focused on this because this is an example of a sort of grandchild plant from Holy Trinity Brompton. So they planted one church in Plymouth, and now that church is going on to plant another one, this time in quite a deprived parish in the area. I also thought it was interesting because the benefice into which they're planting is a forward in faith one. So it's going to involve, I guess, a change in tradition for that particular church, although not for the benefice as a whole. So I guess another example of the way in which church planting is um, sort of changing the landscape of the Church of England. So that's really interesting, the plant seems to afford in Faith Parish, because obviously these plants tend to be associated with charismatic evangelical traditions. Yeah, so this isn't obviously the first time which a evangelical church is planted into a Catholic parish, but I think it just continues that question about whether church planting is, is coming from all traditions. I did ask the Bishop of Plymouth about that, and he suggested that some of the money from the church commissioners is actually going towards a mission worker who will be looking at how to um, support parishioners and students who prefer a more traditional style of worship. So that's an example of kind of strategic development money going to church plants, but also going to support other traditions. Because there have been concerns about whether more kind of Catholic forms of worship are respected and, and observed when churches are planted. Do you think this is HDB or the diocese kind of listening to those concerns? I mean, I think... The style of worship and the tradition will change in that particular church, but as I understand it, the, the benefits at a whole will remain traditionalist. It's just that this, again, the building is being leased to the church plant. I know last year when I looked at church planting in Chichester, one of the archdeacons there spoke of struggling to find resources within the Catholic tradition. And so I think there's an ongoing conversation about how to support church planting in the Catholic tradition. That's also something which the Centre for Theology and Community have looked at and have recommended that some of the larger Catholic churches perhaps could consider planting. I mean, also there's significant investment in these church plants. When I was kind of adding up the sums of money that have come from the commissioners, there's a pot of money which has gone to the Diocese of London to train planting curates some of whom were among those who were announced at Focus. And there's also quite large sums going to other dioceses to fund the church plants themselves, which have often involved either completely renovating buildings that weren't previously churches or reopening churches that have been closed for a long time. So there are quite significant sums being invested in some of these churches and they themselves will be expected to plant. So I know in the Plymouth example, the three church plants there are then expected to then themselves plant producing, they hope, about nine 
churches. So there's kind of an expectation that from that investment will come new churches. And so there's sort of long-term strategic planning from HDB here. I mean, is, is the strategy that they initially plant in city centres and you're where there's a lot of students, is the idea that then the grandchild church is in a more deprived area with more social need? Yeah, so when the, the Diocese of London received, I think, £3.9 million to train 15 planting curates, they talk about going to strategic cities, and that is often cities with a large student population, and the plants tend to launch in September when you're right. going to attract freshers and so on. And then you tend to see sort of the grandchildren plants, the plants from the plants, not sort of going to cities, but perhaps going to a nearby smaller town or a state, as in Plymouth. And we've sort of looked in the past about how those can be slightly different from the big city sort of resource churches. Another thing you've looked at is the number of women or, or the lack of women who are leading these plants. Yeah, so there's very few women leading the HDB church plants. None of the 10 that were announced last week will be led by women. Although what tends to happen is that it's announced as being led by a couple, but it will be an ordained curate from HDB and then his wife, um, rather than an ordained woman leading a church. I also looked at all the 49 churches in the HDB network, and I think around two thirds of them have no women at all ordained serving and several of them do have at least one or two curates so a small number have women clergy on staff I know that they're trying to change that and I know that at Focus there was a seminar by Arise which is a network dedicated to female leadership and Nicky Gumble himself said at Focus that he wanted to see more women planting churches but as yet sort of not really materialising and is your sense that, I mean, the, the theology of Nicky Gumble and, and HDB is not, they're not complementarians, they're, they profess to be egalitarians in the sense they think that women should be able to have yeah, all so, forms of ministry um, and leadership? A couple of years ago, there was actually a talk by Nicky Gumble looking at women's ministry in which he, you know, is on the record saying that he fully supports it, that it's a very important principle and that he hopes to see more women called to leadership, called to ministry. And St Melitus, I understand, is, is about half and half in terms of the gender of people training. It's just a question of whether those women then go on to be appointed to ministry positions within the network and indeed be chosen to lead a church plant. I think it's a question of what happens to those women once they are deaconed and priested. And this was the first focus attended by Sarah Mullally as Bishop of London, I suppose. I know Richard Charters have very strong links with HTB. Yeah. So it seems that she's fully behind the sort of HTB approach and strategy. Yeah, so I interviewed previous Bishop of London just before he stepped down. And he talked about how it had been very important to really harness the energy of, of HDB and he was very supportive of its, of its church planting, although he did talk about having this whole kind of cornucopia of church plants in other traditions. And yes, she was on stage praying for the 10 church plants and was pictured with them. So I'm sure it will sort of continue to be backed by the diocese. I mean, I think 10 of the 15 planting curates who've got this SDF funding will be trained at HDB. And the diocese has previously said that's because diocese want curates from HDB to come to their cities. So I think it's sort of a pattern that we will continue to see grow. Next. Readers of the Church Times would have seen a cartoon by Dave Walker recently about how the Church House Conference Centre hosts the Land Warfare Conference. And this has been an ongoing story that many people are questioning the ethics of this. Now, Madeline, this has moved on somewhat because the Archdeacon of Oxford, the Venerable Martin Gorick, actually attended the AGM of the Corporation of Church House to raise questions. You've been speaking to him. 
Yes, so as I understand it, for the past few years there has tended to be at least somebody raising a question at the AGM and this time it was the Archdeacon of Oxford, Martin Gorick. He told me that he'd actually only been alerted to the use of the centre for this by Dave's cartoon. Dave actually challenged Synod members to look into this because Synod members are ex officio members of the corporation. So yes, Martin went along and asked whether it was ethical to hire out the centre for use in that way. And I think he's in an ongoing conversation now with the chief executive. He also sort of talked to me about whether we can support the military, which we do through our chaplaincy, and yet sort of raise questions about the way in which the centre is used and provides a space for arms companies to advertise. I know that's been sort of a conversation on social media is given that the Anglican church isn't a pacifist church, that it has a military covenant, it has a bishop for the arms forces, it has chaplains. Is it therefore consistent to question the use of the centre in this way? But I think he feels that they're too quite distinct things. And what sort of reaction did he get when he raised it, this issue at the AGM? So the chief executive of the corporation, Chris Palmer, is um, actually a retired Royal Navy Commodore. And he suggested that there isn't really widespread concern about the event. And he also said that there had actually been quite widespread consultation including consultation with Lambeth Palace, which we understand has approved the hiring policy. Things have moved on partly because of Dave's cartoon and because of Martin tweeting about asking the questions. I understand that Mr Palmer's received a number of emails from Synod members and other sort of concerned members of the Church of England and apparently has said that the council of the corporation is going to look into the matter further. So it might just be a case of whether they think that the concern actually is widespread. I think if it's just a few people, I mean, we've reported for a number of years that there have been protests at this annual conference, particularly by sort of pacifist charities. I think it's just a question of whether that concern is deemed to becoming sort of more mainstream. And, and it seems it may be. I mean, you write that March Deacon Gorick said that he's had several bishops write to him expressing their support, or, or at least verbally expressing their support to him. Yeah, and I think it links sort of wider synod debates around the church's position on militarisation. So we had the debate on the ethics of nuclear war, which perhaps raised similar questions. You know, there were people saying, we're not a pacifist church, we have chaplains, we support people in the military. We indirectly receive donations, for example, from congregation members who are employed by arms companies. So I think it sort of fits into a wider debate about whether you can support the military and yet sort of oppose arms companies and particularly uses of the church's facilities. Uh, Let's have a look at what else is in this week's paper. It's the summer months, traditionally silly season, but there's been a lot going on. You've been commissioning away in features. Something really interesting piece by Mark Vernon on the selfie. Yes, so I noticed there were some new books out which were exploring, I guess, the ethics of the selfie, some from quite a technical point of view and others from a theological point of view. I was looking back over our archive and I sort of looked at the first time we'd reported on a selfie, um, Vickers doing selfies at weddings, at other events, the Pope, Pope Francis is sort of regularly taking selfies with people as, as is Justin Welby. And I think they are often kind of dismissed or even sort of scorned as being somehow sort of narcissistic, or shallow people suggesting that they're attention seeking so I wanted to look at I guess some kind of historical antecedents for the selfie so is it actually a new phenomenon or have humans always sought to sort of capture their own 
image at particular moments in time and share it, which is kind of the line which Mark Vernon, who's a psychotherapist and a writer, has taken. He's drawing on some of the new books that have come out, but also on classical history, which is one of his areas of expertise, and also the early church. So looking at what might be some of the positive or even good righteous motivations for capturing yourself at a particular moment in time and he suggests that you can trace it right back to the early church and so although there are concerning aspects of the selfie and social media and the way that they can render you quite vulnerable or that they can be exploited I think he's suggesting that it's perhaps not as new and as groundbreaking as we might think it is. It's a fascinating piece. We've also got uh, an extract from Eamon Duffy's new book. Yeah, so um, this is a really fascinating book which looks at medieval Christianity and the particular section that we've chosen looks at relics, something which I think many Anglicans, perhaps particularly from sort of more low church traditions, might find quite strange or weird. And he's really trying to explain, I guess, the medieval mindset. So why were these things so precious? Why were they deemed to be powerful? Why did people do quite strange things with them? And I found it really helpful as somebody not really familiar with the use of relics in churches just to try and get into that mindset and to understand why it's perhaps not as weird as we might think it is and I guess some of the theology that underpinned their use. Got some interesting comment pieces as well. We've got um, Rowena Young from the Just Finance Foundation, which came out of the now famous war on Wonga launched by the Archbishop and it's just past the five years since Archbishop Welby's famous interview when he said we're going to outcompete Wonga but she's really sort of looking at what happened next and what still needs to happen over the last five years and what progress has been made, which is pretty significant, she says, on financial inclusion. But also one of her main points is that, you know, one man's mission needs to become a movement that brings change. Local newspapers need the support of churches. That's what the Reverend Peter Crumpler writes in this week's Church Times. He's a former director of communications for the Archbishop's Council, who trained as a local newspaper journalist. I spoke to Peter about why everyone, especially churches, should care about the fate of their local press. You write in this week's Church Times that the news from the front line of local journalism is grim. Can you just give us a sense of, of how things look? It really is grim, Ed. I mean, we reckon that something like uh, 300 local or regional newspapers have closed in the past 10 years. And the numbers of journalists working on local regional newspapers has dropped by something like 6,000. They're really big figures and, and the outlook for good quality local journalism in print, online, is really very bleak at the moment. I think we in the church should be very concerned about it. One of the key causes is that the whole sort of financial model for local journalism is really under great pressure because the amount of money that comes through advertising has dropped massively. I think it's more than halved in the past decade. Uh, And that money has gone online. And primarily that money has gone to the big tech giants. It's gone to Facebook. It's gone to Google. It's gone to Twitter to some extent. So the, the financial model for local journalism is really not working. There are other issues like the cost of newsprint, has risen significantly. The cost of actually getting the newspapers delivered through the doors has gone up considerably as well because the minimum wage, which obviously is a good thing, but that does mean that increases the costs of people delivering papers through letterboxes. And as as you say, people, all of us, are, are used now to getting our news for free online. So the idea of paying for news through a a cover price has dropped considerably. I mean, there are some free newspapers that that do well, like, I don't know, the Evening Standard in London, 
the metro around the country in terms of national or regional newspapers. But by and large, the model for local newspaper publishing is really just not working in 2018. Are a lot of these challenges the same as those facing national newspapers, or do you think to some extent it's worse for local newspapers? That's a very good point. I think the pressure is there in national newspapers as well. I focus in my article on very much on the local picture, and, and I do that intentionally because the church is local. I mean, every, as we both know, every parish of England, every inch of England is covered by a parish church. So the Church of England is very much locally focused. And I want to really look at the local media as, if you like, another one of those key components of of localism, uh, where we are invested as as a local church and should be in partnership with the local media. But as you say, the the issues are the same writ large for, for national newspapers as well. And what do you think some of the benefits are to communities of local papers? I mean, what, what would those communities whose local papers have closed down, what, what do they miss out on? Well, I think what they're missing out on is, is at least, I think, four things that I, I would come up with. Firstly, that the local media, when it's working well, is supporting local democracy. It's holding local politicians to account, local councils to account the way a local community operates. You know, things like publishing reports of local court proceedings. And I think I'd also include within that, uh, you know, holding local church leaders to account as well. I think that's part of their role. The second thing I'd say is is a good local media supports uh, local voluntary groups, all manner of groups, helping them publicise what they're doing, get them to recruit volunteers. Uh, I think uh, Justin Welby in his book, Reimagining Britain talks about the important role of what he calls intermediate institutions and how they are the glue that hold local communities together. And I would see the local media as being both one of those institutions, but also a way of holding and supporting those institutions. Another reason for local media being important, I say, is that it combats fake news. I mean, fake news, disinformation is a major problem, I think, in our society. And somehow having locally based professional journalists used to sort of sieving the truth and what isn't so true and then reporting that is really important. And I think lastly, the local media are champions for localism and all things you know good that are happening in a local community and promoting that sense of community. And I think all those four reasons are, are good reasons why we in the church should be getting right behind them. And you also mentioned in the piece that there's this government commissioned review led by Dame Frances Cairncross into, I mean, it's into high quality journalism in general, is it? But looking at local newspapers as one facet of that. That's right. It's very much a wide ranging report or uh, inquiry looking into how we can protect good quality journalism, both nationally and locally. But it does have a particular focus on the local and, and regional media really looking at ways that we can support good quality journalism. Now, now that's not just supporting local titles, because I think there still will be some sort of local media going. But I think it's about supporting good quality journalism in that. And one of the things that people have identified in the run up to this inquiry is the role of Facebook and Google in that they uh, are making money considerable amounts of money out of the output from 
good quality journalism locally and, and nationally. They're making money out of that, but they're not giving, or they're giving very, very little back. And, and is there a way that they can be encouraged or perhaps legislation, I don't know, that would mean that they would put some more money into good quality journalism? I, I think that there's a sort of a, a feeling of unfairness from, from many journalists, from many media organisations that Facebook and Google are, if you like, taking but they're not giving very much back at all. The church's voice on this, do you think the bishops and other senior church leaders are doing enough to raise this issue, perhaps especially bishops in the Lords who, who have the ear of government? I think there are a number of things the churches could be doing. I mean, firstly, I'd love to see the Church of England putting in a submission to the Cairn Cross inquiry, really valuing the role of the local media and encouraging solutions there. Secondly, we in the local church should be supporting our media by you know supplying them with information about what the churches are doing and photographs and then you know publicizing the coverage that we get in the local media you know letting people know that you know there's a good piece about us in the local media this week putting that on our website one of the things we've done in our church uh, just outside St Albans is to have one of the local newspapers actually drop off copies of their newspaper in church so if you want a copy of our of our local newspaper, then you come into St. Leonard's in Sandridge and you can pick up a copy and people do that. And that supports the local newspaper. There are other things as well. I think we should, you know, re- routinely include our local media in our prayer intercessions because that's that's very vital. And and maybe we should be inviting the local editor to come along to Deanery Synod or deanery chapter, and just talk about the challenges that they face and talk about how we can support them in their work. Because, as I say, I think there's a great partnership between the local media and the local church. We, we have so much in common in terms of supporting our local communities. Yeah, I found that myself in my parish church when we held a barbecue picnic recently to welcome some Syrian refugee families to, to Islington. And the... Um, mentioned it to the Islington Gazette and they sent a photographer, a reporter followed up. It was on the front page, you know. They, they really do take an interest in what's going on in the churches, particularly as it relates to the wider community. There's a lot of common interest. The, the local newspapers, local media, local radio are wide open to news from what the churches are, are doing. Uh, I think you, you had a very fortunate situation there where the, the local newspaper sent a photographer. Often it will be down to us to take our own photographs and and send them in. And I know, you know, I know from my own experience that they, they will get used and they will get good coverage. So there, there's, a, there's a great win-win out there, I think, for us to work together with the local media. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.